Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Greetings from Washington, where spring appears to have finally sprung and the winter of our discontent has ended. Yes, discontent and waiting for something, anything to happen. And not because we're necessarily rooting for any outcome, but because we've been talking about this so long. I think we are all ready to get on with it, to see how, or maybe even if, the Biden tax plan can get implemented. Well, of course, finally, today, something has happened. President Biden signed into law the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. I guess we'll call this thing ARPA, shall we? You know, this is the $1.9 trillion bill that Democrats in the House and in the Senate have shepherded through Congress. This is the first step in President Biden's two-step rescue then recover strategy. But seriously, we've talked enough about ARPA over the last few weeks. So today, I'd like to look forward to step two of Joe Biden's plan, his recover package. That is, after all, where we expect most of the tax action to be, including the many tax increase proposals in the Biden tax plan. So what more do we know today about the recover plan that we haven't already talked about? Well, I'll tell you. We've learned some important things, at least I think we have, in how the development, the negotiation, the enactment of rescue pretends the future. Think of ARPA as a bit of a dress rehearsal for the main tax event to come later this year. So to try and read these tea leaves, to try and predict the future, we've got our old friends with us today, Jen Acuna and Tom Stout. So Jen, first question is for you. We've watched ARPA play out these last few weeks. What or have we learned anything about the dynamic between the Biden tax plan that we've been talking about load these many months and the congressional plan potentially for taxes? I think the one big takeaway with respect to having big policy goals and ideals and the congressional approach is what's needed to get the votes is that at the end of the day, you always go with what needs to be done. And usually, you know, what's pulled are revenue raisers that aren't particularly controversial. What we saw was when there was a need to raise revenue in ARPA, which is a funny acronym, by the way, that it didn't go to exotic new policies. They went back to the traditional date-driven, non-controversial revenue raisers. Right. And these are things that they weren't on my radar. I don't know. Maybe, were they on yours, Jen or Tom? Was anybody looking saying, oh, well, here we go on further limitations on 162M? No, I mean, it just goes to show that oftentimes those big policy ideals aren't the first place to go. 162M that went in last minute to fill a very specific revenue gap. It wasn't going to be controversial. It was something that everyone could agree upon. You know, it's definitely a lesson learned. You two former staffers certainly know that tax committee staffers up there always have a pocket full of these little revenue raisers that they can pull out when they need them. You know, I think one of the common threads in some of these tax increases we saw thrown in here at the last minute, tell me if you, you all agree, is these were provisions where there was an obvious dial, right? We could dial something. So in the case of the 162M, the limitation on deductibility of compensation for certain executives. We just change the number, right? We can make the number higher or on this reporting provision, you know, the standards $20,000, let's make it $600. These kind of tax increases where there's an obvious dial are easy ones, right? Because you just have a dial sitting there that you can turn when you need to. Exactly. But Especially, you know, that 461 provision, it was a simple date change, you know, that just added another year um, before expiration that was able to raise some pretty good money. 
Yeah, just a reminder, what Jen's talking about here is the loss limitations for non-corporate businesses was set to expire at the end of 2025. Now it's set to expire at the end of 2026. Right. Big picture, what you're telling me, Jen, is we could talk about the Biden plan. And of course we have, because it's really all we've had to talk about all this time. But this is such a strong reminder that when push comes to shove, you know, Congress is very good. It's shaking the couch cushions, looking for nickels, dimes, quarters. But if it's your quarter, it matters a lot. And there are lots of things, almost an infinite number of ways to raise taxes that are much more mundane than going to sort of the more exotic things we've talked about inside the Biden plan. And we saw them in ARPA, and we are likely to see them again in this next bill. All right, Tom, so we talked about the dynamic between Congress and the Biden plan. Now, let's get inside Congress. Talk about what did we learn between the dynamic between the House and the Senate in the way this package was negotiated? Well, we certainly learned, if we needed to learn it, that uh, they don't always agree, and they didn't agree on some of the elements of this. The big lesson to learn is that even with these thin majorities, it is still possible to get major spending and tax legislation on a partisan basis done, but that it could be really difficult, particularly in the Senate with that 50-50 majority as thin as it can get. And with the dynamic of the Senate, which is generally more of a problem, the individual senators are more independent by constitutional design. They serve six-year terms instead of two-year terms, so they're more insulated from day-to-day politics. There are rules in the Senate that protect debate, that are designed to protect the individual senators' say in, in whatever goes forward. And you know, we saw that manifested in this bill when a single Democratic senator was able to stop everything for 11 hours and renegotiate one of the amendments that the Senate was making. And just in general, using reconciliation, which was the technique that was used to, to get this bill through because it obviously didn't have 60 votes, it only had a bare 50. Reconciliation itself is complicated. And they had to take a couple of House provisions out because they didn't satisfy those complicated rules. The child credit change was supposed to be an advanceable child credit. While the increase in the credit was okay, making it advanceable was not okay under budget reconciliation because it made a change in policy. And there was a provision that would have provided funding for extending the San Francisco Metro. And that also wasn't okay because that wasn't an existing program. And sort of the irony of you know, on the spending side of budget reconciliation is they could put a trillion dollars into the Highway Trust Fund because it's an existing program, sits out there, and the money goes where the money goes. But to spend a dollar on some new program doesn't necessarily fit under budget reconciliation, at least as interpreted by the parliamentarian currently. And what that all means at the end of the day is, in addition to the House and Senate, the administration leadership is going to be pretty important to this next, even larger bill going forward. Try to get that done. It's a reminder that the Senate, for lots of reasons, structural reasons and others, seems to have an advantage over the House. And I say this as a former House staffer. It was endlessly frustrating to us. But Jen, let me ask you this one, because you worked in both the House and the Senate. You were in the Senate during the negotiation and enactment of the TCJA or, you know, deeply, deeply involved in that. Just talk about when they go to write this big tax bill later in the year. How does the dynamic that Tom just laid out that I totally agree with, how does do you think that affects the content and the shape and the, the negotiations around that bigger tax bill? Oh, I mean, it completely drives it. If you can't meet the rules of reconciliation, if you have any bird problems, which is those archaic rules that Tom was referencing, 
you don't get the filibuster workaround from reconciliation. You just cannot do it. I mean, I remember during the negotiations of TCJA, something's birdable. It has to come out or you lose privilege on the Senate floor. And that really drives the discussion. And it can be helpful sometimes in terms of negotiation. But oftentimes, you know, there are really good ways to raise revenue that are going to have to be off the table because it's a reconciliation vehicle. And for instance, anything that touches Social Security trust funds. So that kind of takes payroll taxes out of the equation. And that's a healthy source of potential revenue. So everything centers around in the Senate, around making sure the reconciliation rules are met. You're too kind and polite and modest to do the touchdown dance on our podcast. I'll I'll do it for you, Jen. But if you look back at the TCJA, I mean, look at the House version, look at the Senate version, and you tell me which one became law. And I don't know, what, 95% of the TCJA came out of the Senate version of the bill. And and this is the inherent advantage that the Senate has and has probably always had to a certain extent. Well, I like to think that that was driven less by reconciliation and just simply a more superior policy position. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Uh, uh, But, you know, as a House person, I'm not yet prepared to go that far, Jen. (laughs) All right. So let's go to our next question for you, Jen. Then getting to 50 votes in the Senate, right, which is the absolute minimum they have to have is not going to be easy. What did we learn in this process about getting to 50? You know, Tom mentioned a single senator could hold the process up. What did we learn here about getting to 50 in the Senate? It isn't easy. And (laughs) um, not only is it not easy, with this 50-50 split in the Senate, it's going to be as difficult as it can get, right? Every senator has a lot of leverage. Their vote makes or breaks the entire bill. And when you have that dynamic, all bets are off with respect to A, the size of the bill, and B, in a reconciliation mode, the bill gets bigger. It puts a lot of pressure to raise enough money to offset those increases. It's really going to be a tough negotiation. Tom, has any senator that you recall in like a two-week span gotten more headlines in the press than Joe Manchin? Talk a little bit about why Joe Manchin seems to be in the headlines almost every day over the last couple of weeks. You know, we all have probably gotten tired of you know hearing what Joe Manchin had for breakfast in the morning. You know, it is as simple as him being a centrist by nature and representing a state, West Virginia, that is a pretty red state. So he's a, he's a Democrat running in a Republican state. So his positions are often quite tempered by his upcoming electoral prospects. So that's the dynamic that puts him sort of in the middle of things here. So just to run through the things I recall, and you tell me if I forgot anything, in the last couple of weeks we heard, and this is Senator Manchin talking really mostly about not ARPA, it was just enacted, but about the next bill, this recover package that's coming later. But I, I think it started with saying at one point that the only way he could see paying for that bill was the enactment of a VAT, value-added tax. He then went on to say that he absolutely insisted that the only way he would support the bill is if it was a bipartisan bill and had Republican support. Then he also said that he intended to pay for every penny of it with tax increases, and then also said it should be $4 trillion. Is there any way to reconcile all those statements, Tom or Jen? Can you reconcile all those off the top of your head? No. No. Jen? Not very likely. Um, Although, you know, 
there's enough wiggle room in those comments, right? To have some Republican support doesn't mean regular order, doesn't mean 60 votes. It could just mean one vote. You can't reconcile, haha, they will have to reconcile the bill if it's a reconciliation bill, but it's going to be really tough. I mean, he's really threading a needle here. Yeah. And what I forgot some that he would not, under any circumstances, repeal the filibuster, but then went on to say that we need to reform the filibuster to cause pain for those who are trying to prevent legislation, which I think it does potentially mean that we are looking at the possibility of changing the rules of the filibuster, even if it's not an outright elimination. It could be a change to the rules of the filibuster, at least as we know them today, to smooth the way for future legislation. Is there anything we learned over the last couple of weeks as we watched this rescue package get negotiated and enacted about what we can expect for the timing of the bigger, at least for tax purposes, recover bill later in the year? Well, given the size of this first bill, I I think it moved amazingly quickly. It's kind of hard to see this next one moving with the same kind of speed. What they're talking about now is a two to four trillion dollar bill on the spending side and then tax offsets for some part of that. They're going to have to decide how much it is they're going to spend and what they're going to spend it on. And that's a lot of money to spend. How much of that to offset and what kind of tax increases, who's going to bear the burden of those tax increases. That's a lot to try to figure out with the majorities that they have, which are razor thin. So one would think this is going to take quite a bit longer. What they're looking at at the moment, you know, I think we'll see talk of the target date being September 4th, that's the date that federal unemployment benefits expire. You know, whether they can make anything like that date, it would be kind of amazing to get something this complex together that quickly with these kind of majorities. So that's what they're going to be working against. And, you know, we're going to start to see elements of this. Probably the first shoe to drop will be Biden is uh, planning to address a joint session of Congress. This will be in place of a State of the Union address. We're guessing, you know, maybe two or three weeks from now. They haven't set a date yet. We may get an outline of the plan then. Following that, in maybe late April, early May, we would expect to see the administration's budget. And that will be the real kickoff to this, although we may see some congressional hearings around some of the elements of it even before then. You know, that budget in probably early May, you know, when we begin to see this take shape and whether they can do that between May and September, I think remains to be seen. Well, Jen, tell me, September 4th seems like an odd date for a legislative enactment. Why would that be a strange date to see Congress enact a major law? Uh, Because that's absolutely what they said, Tom. But just explain to folks why that would be a very odd date. Well, because it would be the first day back in session after the August (laughs) recess. So, you know, I mean, and, you know, with a reconciliation bill, we're not saying that it necessarily will be, but we think it will be, that has to go through committees. So both committees have to, they don't have to mark up, but they will likely mark up this piece of legislation, the Senate Finance Committee and the House Ways and Means Committee. And that's just the tax piece. So you have to have multiple simultaneous committee markups. Then they have to pass the floor. And if there are any differences between the House and the Senate bill, potentially have to go to conference. So that's a lot to do in a day after getting back from August recess. So, I mean, we'd have to assume that August recess would be canceled, and that's going to be a stretch. That would be extremely, exceedingly rare for Congress to completely cancel their August recess. So September 4th, you know, I'll take them at their word as it's an aspirational day, but it seems unlikely. Well, let's leave it there for this week. Thank you, Jen and Tom. That was an excellent discussion on what we learned from the rescue bill effort. 
Thinking about today's topic, I was reminded of something else and something that is maybe a total non sequitur, so forgive me. But if you've been to Washington and you've ever walked past the National Archives, you may have seen a quote engraved on a statue out front. That quote, which is from Shakespeare, is, what's past is prologue. Very often you hear people say that quote is just another way of saying history repeats itself. But really, at least in its original context, that's not quite right. It's more along the lines of this. As one acts or prepares to act, those actions are in some ways preordained by all the actions that came before. So in this context, as the tax proposals for recovery get developed, that tax legislation is in itself preordained to a certain extent, preordained by the TCJA and the policy choices made there. Democrats are not working from a blank sheet of paper, not the blank sheet of paper they may have preferred anyway. It's also maybe preordained by Joe Biden's tax plan. The size of the bill is perhaps preordained by the amount of deficit spending already done in rescue and in CARES. And that's a really a critical question to how the budget reconciliation instructions, essential to the success of a recover package, are developed. And then from there, the magnitude of the tax increases we would see in recover flow directly from that. The fate of the recover bill may be preordained by the real possibility of stimulus fatigue, either in Congress or in public or in both in the wake of rescue. Look, no one yet knows exactly how all these factors will play out over the course of 2021, but I do believe that in a year or two, when we look back at how this recover bill unfolds and we ask, why did Congress do that? Or why did Congress not do that? In many cases, the answer to that question will be a direct line back to the bill the president signed into law this week. Well, with that, that's all we have time for today. Thanks again to tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, comments, and suggestions to our email inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.